Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kanke. Today I have my great friend, Jenny Williamson, who is the franchisee for Sandler within Chicago. So, Jenny, could you give us a quick intro to who you are and 90 seconds on your background? Yeah, so I'm a lifelong Chicagoan, 30 plus years in sales, 23 years in Sandler, sales, sales management, general management in my background, and it's kind of parlayed into the business and I used to be a Cubs fan when we could go to baseball games, but I'm not anymore. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm in recovery. <laughs> Excellent. Recovery or withdrawal? With, you know, recovery, actually. I'm, I'm moving on. I'm not playing golf anymore. I'm not watching any sports. <laughs> Good stuff. So, Jody, today we're going to talk a lot about virtual selling. And for those of you who are listening to the audio, we will have some video clips as well. So I'll make sure that those links are available to you. So, Jody, what are the four most common questions you got asked about selling virtually? Well, I think it's gone through phases. You know, two months ago when everything was hitting the fan, I think it was like, which technology to use or how do you turn your camera on? And, you know, all the basic stuff that I think people are beyond <laughs> now. And I think it's, it's evolved into more of the selling piece, which is simple questions like, how do I get my prospect to actually turn their camera on and engage in virtual when they tell me they just want me to email them or they just want to talk on the phone. And then it gets a little deeper than that over time and starts, okay, so once I get them on, what are some of the slight edge communication strategies that we can use to better engage people? So it's not this weird format that's like taking a back seat to -to face-to-face. And in many ways, I've seen over the last couple months and certainly the last month of just observing people and continuing to refine it, that people are starting to say, you know, there's some advantages here that I didn't have face-to-face besides the obvious of not traveling and all that stuff. But there's some communication elements that are really hard to do face-to-face that virtually you can actually, I believe, do better. I agree. I mean, I've certainly noticed that the engagement levels are up we're seeing 300% increase in access rates. And a lot of my clients are reporting at least a 20% increase in production capability. They're not stuck in airports. They're not stuck in waiting rooms. That, you know, they're having six to seven meetings a day instead of two or three. So a lot of them are seeing a massive uplift in their pipeline and in their conversion rates. So tell me this then. In terms of how you have to adapt your communication, What are the lessons that you're learning and teaching your clients? Well, part of it comes down to engagement in the conversation. So once again, if we fast forward, how do you get them to turn their camera on kind of stuff? How do you get them to agree to a virtual meeting? Then I think we get into more of the science behind and the the research that shows like how do people engage and and what keeps their attention. And, And I'll share a graphic here with you. And I'll do this. I know this audio podcast. I know you said you have a a way to to share this also visually. But I'm also doing this because this is part of virtual selling, I found, is being able to use graphics to make a point that are harder to convey when people are in an auditory communication mode on the phone. And I'll hop around a little bit here. But if if I, first of all, let's just look at this, right? And let me get the right screen. So if we look at, and you're familiar with this, of course, right? So if we look at visual, auditory, kinesthetic as three communication modalities, right? Visual is like it sounds for those that aren't as familiar with it. Auditory is spoken word. And kinesthetic is touchy-feely. 
I'm over dumbing this down for myself because I'm slow, but that's the way I think about it. And depending on what research study you look at, it shows that seven, I saw one recently, 72% of people when they're tested as to which one is their highest communication modality, visual is their top one. And so, okay. And this is based on neuro-linguistic programming and the studies that have been done many times. So whether it's 72 or 78 or 65, whatever, I don't think most people without even knowing the research would agree. Yeah, visual really helps most people communicate, right? Yeah. So then we look at, okay, how do we do that face-to-face? Got it. Even though most people, when they meet face-to-face, are actually using auditory communication for most of their messaging, they're not using visuals many times, which is a whole other dynamic. But if you look at, and I'll just share this graphic here, you look at this piece of research that shows, okay, how do people, when they multitask, how do they multitask in communication? And the graphic I'm showing basically shows that, just to give the opposite end of the spectrum, 57% of people on a conference call check out, 23% when there's a web conference call, 16% in-person meetings, they're still glancing at their phone or doing something, but 4% of people when they're doing video conferencing, when they have their camera on and they're being policed a bit to not check the phone, <laughs> it changes things. So, so if you really look at this, this graphic, it's like, okay, let's not fight the research. Not, let's not fight the science of how people's primary communication mode works. Let's say, okay, we're kind of moving and adapting to some new realities. How can we best use that? And I think what a lot of salespeople have done, at least early on, is they went to their comfort zone, which was pick up the phone, which, you know, it's pretty much everyone's comfort zone. But now that they're starting to see the evidence and they're starting to get some early indicators of more effective meetings, I find that people are getting way more okay with not only making it part of the way they sell, but actually embracing it. What I'm noticing is that you can get so much more done. And like you say, if you can get people onto video, then the level of engagement does definitely seem to be higher. What I'm curious about is how you take someone who is maybe very kinesthetic, maybe a very high C in disc, so cautious, and they're not necessarily that comfortable going on to video. One of the bits of advice that I've been given is if you know that you're dealing with a high C, start out on audio and then ask permission to move on to video. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you're you're seeing works nicely? Well, that's a really good idea. What I found, and it's, it's... It's so simple that when I say it, it's going to be like, well, duh. But as I say this, people will agree with it, but I'll ask them if they're actually doing it. And then if they're honest with me, like, well, actually, no. And it goes back to what's in it for them, right? Usually what's in it for them is the salesperson says, hey, let's do a Zoom call. Let's do WebEx, whatever it is, right? Whatever the technology. And they're typically saying it because they want to, for the salesperson's benefit, have a better communication process so they can sell them. I know that's not spoken, but it's all about, let's do a Zoom call because we should do a Zoom call coming from the salesperson. And I've found that the level of acceptance of actually using the technology changes greatly just by saying, and here's why. (laughs) I just put it, here's why. Hey, Marcus, you know, I like to to jump on a a Zoom call and, and instead of on the phone, here's why, you know, based on what we talked about 
that we want to cover. I have a couple graphics that might aid to our conversation. I want to point out to you, it's way easier just to walk through it than to try to send it to you. And, you know. So I do some kind of what's in it for them. And like I said, that's so one of those phrases that's kind of overused maybe, but it works and it's true. And most people I talk to, when I explain that concept, they're like, you're you're right, actually. I typically have them do it because for my benefit, really, if I if I strip away all the layers, it's not for their benefits. We have to have a benefit for, for them. And when I'm coaching people in the last month, especially, just do a compelling what's in it for them. If you don't have one, come up with one. And, and I have found people way more open to it when they know there's a benefit for them in it. One of the other things I'm starting to notice is the depth of conversation. Maybe it's me, I don't know, but I'm certainly finding that people are opening up and being more candid quicker, less defense, and the defense walls drop a lot sooner. I don't know whether or not I just have a knack or something else, but again, are you noticing that the quality of the conversations is better? It is, and it's not only the Yes, it's a more authentic conversation. And I don't know, we could analyze the psychology of what's going on in the world. And I'd be curious on your opinion. I, I think it's people are feeling vulnerable. They're feeling weird. They're feeling a bit lonely. And I think that for certain people, they're not able to vent to certain people. And they've like, there's this whole weird thing going. And by asking the right questions, and I'm, I'm sure you have a knack for it, that by having the right questions, I think people are thirsting <laughs> to kind of get some stuff off their chest in in our in all of our own areas that we specialize in, and our our specifically that you and I are both. And I know that people, if you ask the right questions and especially use some visuals to make a couple compelling points, people are opening up. I think it's a good point. Why why do you think it is in your observation? I think the Catholic Church has grown big because of confession. And to some degree, I think this offers an opportunity for people to get stuff off their chest, where people are feeling isolated, they're feeling exposed and vulnerable. This gives them an opportunity for some semblance of human contact. And if you're offering empathy and you're genuinely open to listening, you're curious, then... In this kind of environment, people want to open up. One of the things I've been really driving home with my clients is the use of the winner's triangle. So vulnerable, nurturing, and assertive, rather than getting sucked into the drama triangle of victim, persecutor, rescuer. And I think what a lot of people need is to be heard, to feel felt, to feel understood. And this represents a great opportunity to have very authentic conversations with people where it still feels private, despite the fact, I mean, you may well have the recording button on, and they know that that's happening, and but they still open up, because I think it feels like a safer environment. You know, if you're at home, it's like a lot of the hackers are taking advantage of people being at home, because their defense walls uh, have dropped. So they're much easier to get roped into some kind of phishing attack. And I, I suspect there's some of that that's going, you know, that's play here. I would agree with that. And I I think just to add to that, I think that there's a thirsting for knowledge and that, you know, once again, another overused phrase, value creation, right? But I have 
gotten really good engagement and many of our clients have by just going with the concept of, okay, the world's really complicated now. People are looking for someone to simplify things for them that's a pro, that, is, that is of interest and applicable to them. And if I can be the curator through my prospecting, through certain mediums, and through the questions I'm asking or the visuals I share, because if I set it, if I set a meeting up and say, hey, I want to share with you some trends we're seeing in manufacturing when it comes to uh, selling, I mean, I, I could find some stat. I find that people more than ever, I mean, I've always thought that every business really exists to simplify someone's life. You know, we exist in Sandler to help simplify selling for people and sales management. I mean, it really comes down to that. And because we figured out some hacks there. And all of my clients have some special area of the world where they simplify things for people. And so I think it's when I go to my phone and I get all this news I can have, I have a site that curates some news that knows I'm, I'm interested in based on the way I set it up. And I don't have to think, I don't have to find all this stuff. And, and I've found that I think in addition to what you're saying, I think people are thirsting for some simplicity right now. And if from a selling perspective, if we can be, the person that's curating valuable information for them that they don't have to go find on their own. I think that's, that's creating a lot of engagement for our clients. I know it is for me. Well, on that note, one thing I learned from Anthony Amarino, which I think is just a stroke of genius. And because of that thirst for knowledge, WWGS, what would Google say? And yeah. you simply type in trends in manufacturing 2020, and all these companies like Pricewaterhouse, Accenture, McKinsey, Bain & Co., Boston Consulting, all of these guys will have done their trends reports. And so pull that information, collate and curate it, and come up with the stuff that you think is most relevant in with respect to your world and how you can help people. And simply invite them to... So, Jody, look... I've done some research on trends that I think are likely to affect your business over the next 12 to 18 months. When would be a good time to run through it? Take about 20 minutes. We can hop on a Zoom call and I can show you what I found. And then bring that information together. Allow them to have a copy of it so they can share it with their own board because it's very relevant. And that allows you to investigate their pain on the basis of the gaps in those trends. It's a fabulously simple and it's a value add as far as they're concerned. And, and, and I think it breaks through the clutter now. I mean, people are looking for simplification. That's exactly what it is. That's, that's really good. And I have a similar thing I tell people here, at least in the States. You know, Wall Street Journal is like kind of the place I can go every morning. And I get my subscription and I tell salespeople all this time, just go to the Wall Street Journal. Every day, you've got at least one thing you can pull out of there and probably send to 80% of your clients that would be relevant. And you've just edited that whole thing. And it was something that wasn't, it was just a value. It's like, here's what manufacturing is doing out of China for the next three months based on this, this trend that we're seeing. And I know you're in manufacturing, but you might want to know. I mean, talk about like such a simple thing to do that once again, I think more than ever now people, and I think that if it's done authentically, because I'm a real big believer in authentic selling, right? It's like, if it's coming from the right spot, I think people can feel that. If it's some kind of marketing move, I think sometimes they can feel it. Depends on the the how the marketing is done. But I think that when I'm pulling something and I'm sending it out, sure, I could say, okay, I'm doing it for marketing. I'm doing it to sell. But and it's true. <laughs> but 
I do think it's, I feel better about it when it's authentic. And I think it's received differently when it's authentic. And it's like, this is just, I think this is a value. I think you should know about this. And if I'm doing that from the right spot, I think people can sense that. Another thing that people can do is if you're operating in a particular sector, at the end of each quarter, all the publicly listed companies have analyst calls. And it's end of an earnings period. They have to, uh, the CEO and the CFO have, have to speak to analysts. Listen to those calls because you'll identify some great trends and issues. And if you start to see a pattern, that will help you develop your 30-second commercial. You can use that in your marketing. You can use it in your content creation. And also, if you want to speak to the CEO and the CFO of those companies, if you've got a solution to a problem that they're listing in those analyst calls, which incidentally are prepared for lawyers, unlike their annual report and accounts, which is produced by marketing, then you've got a really good entree. Yeah, and uh, the, the mistake people make, I think, is that so many people I've heard saying during this period, well, you know, is it appropriate to sell? Now, I know you and I both share this view. Who the hell are you not to sell when someone is going through dire straits like they are at the moment? I think it's an obscenity that salespeople are sat there, sat on their laurels, waiting for this period to end when people need your help now. Yeah. Can I share another screen with you here on something? I don't, like I said, I, um, you know, you may recall at the Sandler Summit, I, I shared the ethical selling model. Yeah. And I want to share this with those listening too, is that I've been talking a lot about this and it was so strange that I did my talk at the Sandler Summit on this topic. And I did it about a week before everything hit, right? We were probably one of the last large group <laughs> events in Orlando, right? For our whole thing we were together for. And this just happened to be my topic. And it it made sense before. And I think it made even more sense afterwards. And first part of the ethical selling model that I developed really, I, I, I mean, that's always appropriate and, and people like it. And, you know, it's unethical to sell someone something they don't need. Okay. But the second part of the model, I think, is the super relevant now, adding on to what you said, right? Which is it's unethical to not sell someone something they do need. And when people are out there now doing that whole back and forth in their head that you just talked about. Like, should I sell now? I feel a little guilt. It feels a little weird. You know, I don't want to be too pushy. People are in a weird spot. And I think that's changing over the last month, but still some people have it. I always share with them part two of this model where, you know, if you truly have someone out there who needs what you have, either now or in 90 days or whenever things change, and you owe it to them. If you have, I mean, the fact that a company exists says they must have something of value they've created for the world. If you really believe in what you're selling, it's unethical to not prospect. If you truly know there's people out there that can help you that you don't know, and prospecting is really about finding people that you can help, boil it all down, right? And giving them a solution at some point. So I really think this is an important mindset for people right now who are kind of in that hesitancy mode or they're not being as assertive. I mean, I think more than ever, we have to help people make decisions right now. People are paralyzed by the unknown, by uncertainty. And they're looking for a salesperson many times through their consultative approach to get people to discover they got a problem and they have a solution and let's make a decision to fix it. And I, I think that, you know, the great business consultant and marketing guy, Jay Abraham, has one of my favorite quotes. It's, you know, people are silently begging to be led. 
people are silently begging to be led. They don't always raise their hand and say, hey, you know, I'm looking for something. But, but people with the right approach and the ethical approach, they're waiting for some answers right now. <laughs> they just want someone to like engage with them and get to a point where it's like, this is what you do. This then brings me to another theme that I keep banging the drum on with my clients as well. Your job is to establish, can I help? If I can, am I the best person to help? If your answer to either of those questions is no, then you have a moral duty to withdraw from the sale. You're only about a 70% fit. Yeah, you can tell them, and if they choose to go ahead, then that's a judgment call. But if there's someone who, can be, who is better suited to help them, I think it's incumbent on us to say, you know, Jody, I've got to be honest, we're about 70% fit. But if you speak to my competition, they're a much closer fit to what you're looking for. Go and speak to them. I'll happily make an introduction. And I think that is grown-up, adult-to-adult selling. And while people who have a scarcity mentality, they have a weak, empty pipeline, or they lack the moral backbone, might poo-poo that. I genuinely believe that's the only and the right way to sell. It's, it's crazy not to. And you build so much credibility by doing that. And, yeah, and, and, and that's why I came up with part number one of the rule, right? It's unethical to sell someone something they don't need. And, and even to your point, I mean, talk about the credibility we build. And, and you and I have both seen it in our business where someone says, okay, I got pain A, pain B, and pain C, basically. And from an authentic place, when I say pain A and pain B, no-brainers. We could do that all day long. Pain C, I got to tell you, it's not our sweet spot. And I'd suggest we don't work on that with you. I got some people I can refer to you. But yeah, A and B all day long. And it's amazing the credibility you get when you tell people you can't do all the stuff that they thought you could do, but you can totally nail a couple of the ones that they that they shared with you. Absolutely. So one of the other things that's constantly going on at the moment is around discounting. And I have a real bugbear about this at the moment. I was listening to a webinar a couple of weeks ago, and the CEO of quite a successful company then came to the point where he said, well, now what we're seeing is you know, we're having to discount in order to get deals over the line. And to my mind, that just strikes me that they don't fundamentally understand human beings, and they don't have a strong money concept. People say no for one of five reasons. They say no because they're not emotionally connected to the outcome. They say no because they haven't been presented with enough of the evidence for them to feel confident in their decision. The salesperson has said or done something to create doubt or distrust. They're speaking to the wrong person or they're bluffing. And when it comes to discounting, if someone is basically going, well, you know, that's a bit too rich for my blood. You need to test to see whether or not that's real. And you also need to ask yourself the question, if I agree to this discount now, what is the long-term strategic suffering that it will create for me in my business? Because if you discount today, then that's the baseline. That's the point of reference that that customer will have for all future purchases. And if you don't make it difficult for them to get a discount and you make a unilateral discount, then they will automatically think, well, if I just squeeze Jody next time. So what are you teaching your clients around that? You know, from a leadership perspective in organizations, 
it's belief and conviction in, in what we're selling and knowing that we have magic dust and being ready for that. I mean, and, and the other thing is that some of the salespeople who didn't really have that, that objection in our previous, you know, six months ago or years ago, we might not have the people who can really over overcome that objection. There are some people with money issues or discomfort with it. They want to be liked, their need for approval. There's all these convergings of weaknesses that people have that in our previous world we were living in might have gotten people through. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of companies like I saw in 2008 who prior to an event thought they had good salespeople and a good sales team. And he started realizing afterwards that all that time, they just had really good order takers. They had really good clerks. And so when I'm also coaching leaders and managers now, it's like, do you have the right people for this next phase we're going into? Because what you're describing is clearly going to be happening more, is that all these companies that are having bad quarters and their business is down, they're getting all their procurement purchasing buyers together and saying, go ask for X percent across the board from every single supplier. And they're not going to get it from every single supplier. But the salespeople who don't know, first of all, they've never experienced that before. So they're just going to cave or they're going to come back to the boss and say, they want this thing. We're going to lose the business. we got to sharpen our pencil. Well, now that they've opened the door, what are they going to do? The biggest thing I'm talking about now is, do you have the right people? And if you do have the right people, do they know how to do that? Because many of them have never experienced what's coming with buyers asking for discounts because it's going to be across the board. This is another really interesting line of conversation. And I'm finding it fascinating because the road warriors and the international road warriors are essentially, to a large extent, off their redundant. And... I mean, in the US, as you lift uh, restrictions, then people will be able to get back in their cars and in planes. But if you're doing any international work, odds are you're going to be in quarantine two weeks either end, the minute you step off off the plane. And there's, to my mind, a bloodbath coming within the sales profession. I think as a profession, this is long overdue, and we've never had an opportunity to do it across the board. So I'm sure I'm not going to be very popular with my sales listeners, but I've already got a friend, don't need another one. So my question is this, given that the road warriors who claimed that interview that they were really good in front of people are not going to be able to do that, and many of those are not adapting well to selling virtually, my thinking is this, a lot of those guys will just be let go. And what's going to happen is they're going to, there's can be a big push to recruit SDRs, so internal salespeople who are strong on the phone, strong through Zoom or Teams. And if you're selling internationally, you now have two choices. Choice one is to go out and recruit more road warriors locally and then incur that regular monthly fixed cost of salaries and having to provide them with expenses and all those other things. And option two is uh, to build a a channel. Now, option two is split into two options as well. One is you can build a land army, which is the traditional route. The other option is to build a special forces unit and then really develop your partners, train them how to sell and do that virtually. And I think we're going to see a major uplift in the assets that are available 
because Zoom and Teams and WebEx, they're all great to a point, but I don't think most managers know how to use them and most channel managers don't know how to use them effectively. In terms of your thinking about the way the whole sales profession is going to have to respond to this, what are your thoughts? No, it's really interesting thinking. I, I like that. And I hadn't verbalized it or heard it verbalized like that. That's, that's really smart. My thought building off of that, and I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, is that, okay, so if face-to-face is going to, let's say that 80% of an interaction for a salesperson was face-to-face before and 20% were those or whatever the number, 70, 30, it's certainly going to be flipped, if not even more extreme. But I even think of sales teams and uh, well, sales sales organizations and companies that maybe in the past had 20 outside sales reps and three people inside doing customer service and maybe inside sales, depending how you define that. There's probably going to be a flip. There's probably going to be a flip. And, and to your point, too, I think, is that the skill set for inside sales even from before is going to be different because many times inside sales in many companies that I work with anyway, we're selling the lower ticket stuff. The outside sales, were selling the more complex solutions. The inside sales people were very transactional. Typically they weren't typically don't take this the wrong way inside salespeople, but they typically when tested, weren't as strong of a salesperson. Sometimes they were more reactive than proactive. I actually want inside salespeople to hear this because I do think that to, to survive in the coming world, the inside salesperson is even going to be a different skill set and mindset than we had in the past. I think there's uh, an added uh, piece to, or dimension to this, which is we've obviously partnered with Gong. Every single sales call is now being is recordable. Now, when we met in Orlando in March, they had 10 million recorded calls to use as a benchmark and a statistical base. Now, every call on the planet effectively can be recorded. Every mistake, every call can be a teachable moment. And what this crisis has done is it's highlighted weakness. It hasn't created it. It's exposed it. And I think one of the biggest areas that I hope this crisis will force companies to develop is sales management. In our Sander Research Center study that we released in the first quarter of this year, the finding was only 6% of sales managers globally were fit for purpose. That means 94% were not. And this crisis must have exposed that something terrible. So in terms of advising leaders, what advice are you giving to leaders about developing their managers especially in the current period and post-COVID period. Yeah, I think once again, this is going to put, like you've said, it's going to put a magnifying glass on the weaknesses that were already there. Um, And it's going to highlight it. It's going to rise to the surface. So I found that most sales managers are sales manager in title only. They were promoted. That was the career track. and, And management for them is typically a title and some spreadsheets they do and some internal, you know, strategic thing, you know, whatever they got to do. So very few sales managers are effective at coaching, at accountability. And then even within those as subsets, they're not 
typically really good at pre-call strategy and role play and practice and debriefing of calls and curbside critiques and developing expectations through the Sandler term we use cookbook, whether that's the term used or not, some kind of expectation and tracking and feedback loop. I mean, if I just start layering on these things and I say to your point, to your stat, like how many people do that? It's the 6%. And if we, if we were to set, if we were to even ask company leaders, CEOs, hey, how's your sales management team? Are they doing what they need to do? We're not going to get 100%, but I guarantee we're not going to get 6%. We're going to get a lot more who are under the false belief that their people have what it takes. And not only that, you layer on, that was done earlier this year, that research. That was before everything that hit. And so now you say, okay, if they weren't doing the right stuff before, the likelihood of them all of a sudden discovering the right stuff now is very slim. And I'd also say that the 6% that were ready, how many of those aren't going to adapt? So now we're down to 2 or 3%. <laughs> so, so it's like, okay, we have really just got to, and that's a really good reset though, because there's a lot of people who should have never been in sales management and this will just help them decide they should be back in sales or they should be doing something else. Or I, I think that when it looks at when we look at people's ambition and drive, willingness to learn, willingness to change, I mean, I think right now, that's one of the top qualities of uh, just to survive in the world now. And the people who are set in a certain way, you know, I think back to something you said earlier today, and it's, if I was to ask in a group of 100 people, you know, I was doing a workshop or something, and I asked that generic question, how many of you feel like you're better face-to-face than on the phone? I'm telling you, 90, 100 hands go up. And most people, right? They, they oh, I am. It's like, okay. And so it, it's it's like, that's just not what we're doing anymore. <laughs> so you can either, and I guarantee you, whether it's verbalized or not, there are salespeople out there saying, this too shall pass. Fourth quarter, I think I'll be face-to-face and I'll be doing all my stuff and maybe they're right. But I'm preparing for a world where it's never going to happen again. And when it changes, we'll go back. But right now, it's like we we have a lot of clients now who have told us that the people they're selling to have told us, you're not coming in our building the rest of the year. There are no visitors allowed in our plant. It's not going to happen. So, okay, that's the cards I'm dealt. Mm, what do I do? This, again, raises another question right at the beginning of the cycle, which is the recruitment cycle. One of the things that I love about the work that we've been doing uh, with our clients in recruitment is the profiling. So doing an X-ray MRI of salespeople. And one of the profiles that we deliver is they're called extended disc. And you have profile one, which is perceived need to adjust. So that's how they behave when everything is going really well. And then you have their natural style. This is who they become under pressure. And again, what I'm seeing is as I look through the profiles of my clients and I see the ones who are not or haven't been responding as well to the pressure, where profile two indicates that they're likely to run their mouth or they're likely to paralyze, that's definitely coming true. And so looking for predictors in your recruitment process, I think Recruitment of salespeople and of managers absolutely is in dire need of an overhaul Um, because they look for the wrong things. They look for skills, experience, and results, all of which are great lag indicators. And they tell me that Jody may have been good once. They don't tell me whether he was lucky, whether he happens to be in the right place at the right time, whether he was carried, and they don't tell me whether he was burnt out. Now, 
the predictors of success are things like habits, cognitive abilities, attitudes, beliefs, and values. These tell me whether or not the person I'm about to put on payroll and spend essentially the price of a small mortgage to bring on board is going to work out. And I've been working with an academic who's a couple of years ago when he had a life-changing event, he decided to become an academic after having built eight companies up very successfully. And his research shows that it takes 38 months to recover when a salesperson leaves. 38 months. Wow. And my calculator suggests that for an enterprise salesperson, it costs 35 to 125 times salary if you make a bad hire in an enterprise sales role. Now, these are all going to be inside sales. So we need to be really smart. And I think management and leadership really need to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror and with a blank sheet of paper, redesign their sales operation as if they were starting it from scratch because you've been given this blessing, which is COVID, that you can now restructure. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And and we think of one of our tools like the search model, which is a way to really define the ideal salesperson. And just for those that aren't familiar, the S stands for skills, E for experience, the A for attitudes, the R for results, C for cognitive skills, and H for habits. If we look at those six columns on the visual that I'm thinking that we have, it has changed and it's not the same. And like you said, it's, it's, you know, where, what's the current state that we're trying to hire? We, you know, it's just because someone had fire in their belly 20 years ago when they started their sales career doesn't mean they have it anymore based on a lot of circumstances that can happen. And yeah, I, th- I think it's not only defining and starting with a clean slate and saying, okay, who's our ideal person, whether you use the search model tool or not, what does ideal look like? The other thing I think we have to have sales leadership and managers ready for is not only a recruiting process and, and assessments and, and def- def- defining like you're describing, it's being ready for the coming wave of really good salespeople who are available in the marketplace. And, and, and there's going to be a lot of boneheads and even more reason to have a really good testing mechanism, a really good selection process, because we're going to have a lot of people losing their jobs in sales. And most of them are still going to be boneheads based on the research that we know the way it works. But we also know, and I believe this, that in the next 90 days, the rest of the year, there's going to be better sales talent available the companies that have their antenna up and are looking for it than has existed in recent memory, if not even longer. And being able to understand how do I attract them? How do I weed out the boneheads from the rock stars? How do I figure that out? How do I, I mean, there's so many, and even things like comp plans. I mean, I was talking to someone last week. They described their comp plan to me and they were heavily on kind of the base and very light on the commission bonus part. And they were wondering why they couldn't attract top sales talent. Now, there was a number of reasons. But one of them was, you get a really good salesperson that comes in, like, really good. They don't want to be capped. They said, well, we're not capping them. They can have the, come on, the math. They still have a cap, whatever you want to call it. So everything from comp plans to recruiting processes to testing to search model, the ideal candidate, it all needs to be relooked at, not only so we get the right people, so we attract the right people. Because we will repel really good people if we, and they and really good people can look at an organization and say, do I want to be part of that group? 
Well, one thing I'm also seeing, and I'm seeing this pattern repeated time and again, is companies have furloughed the sales force apart from the really good ones. But the really good ones have been asked to take a pay cut or they're withholding commission until things get better. Now, those are the people who are propping the business up. But you can bet your bottom dollar that the owners haven't taken a pay cut. Now, those good salespeople who are propping up the business, they're not going to be hanging around. They're going to be looking around the market, and they are going to be unhappy. And you need to be out there. And I know that many of you will be saying, well, we use our own network. We use our own internal recruitment people. But your internal recruitment people are basically comped a salary. They don't get paid a commission for uh, making good placements. They also don't have to make a guarantee. My recommendation is go out and find, if you can, a great headhunter and pay them a retainer and pay them full fees to go out and recruit A players. One A player is worth at least three B players and one B player is worth at least three C players. You can afford to pay nine C player salaries to get one A player and you're still getting a damn good deal. Because not only will they smash their number, but they're not going to be a pain in the ass to manage. But they'll get on the job. To add your point, too, it's like, you know, the numbers you shared with me were interesting based on your research you've been exposed to around, like, what does, what's the impact of the wrong hire in enterprise selling? So you think it just, what's the impact of not having those B and C people get through the gate and fool us in the process? And once again, it's like, holy crap. So I'm going, to pay a, um, I'm going to pay a recruiter full dollar and I might look at it and say, wow, that's more than I've ever paid a recruiter. Well, why not? You're looking at that kind of upside. What are you thinking? You know, you're not paying them. You're just investing in it and you're going to have like a 100x payback. So what are, you, what, are you, like, what are you smoking? Well, again, to take my slightly unpleasant model further, there is uh, something called Price's Law, which is basically 80-20 in the top and bottom 20%. So... Price's law states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization. So if you have 50 salespeople, seven of them will produce 50%. Okay? Now, simple way of understanding the model. If you have 10, three salespeople will generate 50%. If you have 100 distributors, 10 will produce 50%. If you have 10,000 partners, 100 will produce 50%. Yeah? Yep. Now, when you think about this, if you're looking at this completely rationally, look at the top 50% producers. So let's say you've got 50 people in your sales team. That means seven of them are top producers. That means you've got 43 salaries that can be redeployed on building a fantastic SDR team. Use a tool like Connect and Sell to fill the pipeline so that they're speaking to prospects. Those guys are securing the meetings. You're feeding those seven, okay? Then you're spending the rest of that money on great marketing that actually works, not the usual shit that you're producing with product data sheets, which are just tech equivalent of showing photos of your ugly kids to strangers. Then use that money to recruit more A players and to build your channel because your channel is going to be populated lots of good salespeople that are looking for jobs. Now, in the next 90 days, there's going to be uh, so many companies going under. Forrester's saying that 150,000 managed service providers out of the 600,000 globally today 
will be going bust. Now, that is a God-given opportunity like you've never seen before. The opportunity to ambulance chase and cherry pick. If you've got a good SDR team that's got good data, and that's the other thing, spend some money, find your lowest performer and buy good data from a good data source, and feed your SDRs with great raw material, okay, then you're not probably not going to make the same revenues, but you will make probably about the same profits over the next six months. And as you start to recruit and take your time, make sure you're getting only A players in on your team. Then by the time the end of the year has come, your revenues will be back up to where they were. But now your profits will be up 300, 500%. And it's crazy not to do that. But again, a lot of people are going to be saying, well, you know, we can't do that. It's not fair. Well, actually it is, because if you don't do it, you're probably going to go under. And I know people who are still paying off. They went to cash in 2008 when the crash happened, and they went to cash, and they still haven't got themselves out of that. And it's the same thing in this. You will be paying for this 10, 12, 15 years down the road if you don't make those tough decisions today. How do you think, from your perspective, how do you think, going back to something you talked about that ties in here, is that how do you think the working through channels or a distributor sales force or you know manufacturers rep sales force, given that it might not make as much sense to have the people all over the world that made sense to have as employees before. Do you think there's going to be a shift to more of that? Yeah. Or is it not going to be impacting? I, well, I think people will make one of two choices. Either they will go out and they will try and build a land army, which invariably will end up with an awful lot of waste of time, money, effort, and you'll burn through leads. The smart ones will go out and they will find one or two partners per region. They'll be exclusive to particular verticals and they will build a special forces unit. I have a friend, Nick, and he did this in his business. And in 15 years, he went from zero to three billion pounds a year. It was exclusively a channel-based sales model. He's just exited at 36 years old. He's got more money than God. And every single one of his partners was exclusive. I have another friend, uh, Zach. He has built over a 1,000 partnership relationships over the last 30 years. Every time, it was exclusivity within that region. And that's the model that really works. Do not go out and build a land army. Find a partner who is good at selling and make them better at it. That's your how, job. How do you see then, from a company's perspective, they best work with the distributor? I don't know if some of the manufacturers groups that I mean that I've exposed to, and I know you've shared this, I've heard you say this, that they might not always have the strongest sales force. And now it depends who it is, of course. But now, given where we're going, they might really not have the strongest team. So do you see everything we're talking about just kind of applying to what they're going to be doing on the on their end, too, just in another way where they, they need stronger people? There might be some more inside ones. There's a different skill set or, or is it is it different? Well, I think the channel management is an area that absolutely needs to be invested in. And what passes for average in sales is poor. What passes for counting for average in channel management is atrocious. But the difference between having a great channel management operation and not is, I mean, there's evidence all over the shop. 
You've got companies like Bicotic, all of their international business is done through partners. And I think they grew sales internationally 43% last quarter. And they grew overall 85% worldwide. They have a direct sales force in the US where they're naturally stronger, they've been around for longer. But you look at Datto, you look at Connect Ones, those businesses with strong channel teams and great channels, they IPO'd for one and a half billion. Their nearest competitors IPO'd for 100 million. You look at companies like 8x8 headed up on their channel by John Delosier. Those companies are growing 40, 50, 60% a quarter. And that's through partners, and that's through having a very small special forces unit. In fact, many of these organizations, if they're smart, even if they do have a special forces unit, will be looking at either bolstering them or replacing them with better ones. And there are eight players out there. You can move into a two-tier distribution model where you can have all of your bottom 50% producers being managed by distribution, and the vendor themselves should be working directly with the eight players. You don't necessarily have to let all of them go. Uh, but what you don't want is the headache of uh, basically being a referee for kids, which is what a lot of channel management appears to be when you've got the wrong partners. And it, you know, I see so much waste. But if, they don't, if they're not savvy about this, then at best, they will just be another catalog producer. And if someone buys from them, it won't be because they did any selling. It would be entirely because the buyer and this is where that awful statistic, you know, the buyer is already 60% of the way through the buying decision by the time they speak to a salesperson. That just tells me you've got bloody awful salespeople. They haven't been doing their job right. Yeah, so, I'm with you. Okay. That was a bit of a rant. I'm going to get off my soapbox. <laughs> but you did ask me a question. You got I me. did. <laughs> so tell me this. In terms of what you're seeing in terms of sales enablement technology, because this is another area. I, I was speaking to Max Altula last night, and that was really interesting because he said that what sales enablement does is it generally exposes your weakness if you're weak and enhances your strengths if you're strong. What advice are you giving to your clients around the use of sales enablement technologies, and what do they have to get right first? I think that there's a few things. I'm not the most technical guy, so but I think that's the what I bring to my conversations with clients is because I'm a kind of a dummy, but I can just look at the basics. One of the basics is that many times sales enablement, depending on how they manage it and roll it out, can make things more complicated and less effective than it was before. I also know that that most sales enablement, it I've I've always said it's like buying a Porsche sports car. And all you use it to do is is just go run an errand every Saturday to go to the market to get you know some bread or whatever. He's like you have way more than you need for that for what you're using it for. And so I think for many in sales enablement, it's way they build this complex thing that doesn't always get down to the basic few. And I find that the basic few measurements or activities or whatever is trying to be driven tends to get lost in the complexity. And so when I'm meeting with companies, I tell them up front, I'm not like the guy who's going to figure out the technical part, but I do know from a salesperson's perspective and from a sales management's perspective, it better be really simple and there better be something in it for me to use it. Otherwise, the company's going to spend all the time trying to get 
buy-in. They're going to, it's just, it's, it's a mess. And most of it is not rolled out the right way. It's not sold internally the right way. It's not managed the right way. There's not a compelling reason for people to use it. So it becomes a distraction and it becomes more noise than it's worth. And I know that's kind of a big picture answer, but I just, I see it's usually like, it's just usually not well thought through. And then it doesn't really get to the point of what are we really trying to accomplish with this? Like, what is the end goal? <laughs> like, And I know that, for example, with Sandler very specifically and the selling system, that our clients who use the selling system don't always integrate it to the level that they should in their processes. And so they have this selling system and they've got this CRM or some kind of technology and it's like time out. Like let's keep it really simple. How can we use that to better better enhance and make effective some of the core principles in Sandler that we know work? And then I really think when done effectively, one plus one can equal three. And both of them are stronger. Sandler's stronger with the right enablement internally. But I also know that the CRM or, and, and many of the technologies are, are more valuable when there's a selling methodology and system overlaid into it. And now there's a reason to do it. Well, I, I heard a horrific statistic, but I've seen it verified several times, that only about 20% of the data that's in a CRM is actually accurate. Now, what that means is management and leadership are making decisions on the basis of awful bad data. And you know, bluntly, they'd probably be better making many of their financial decisions on the basis of the flip of a coin. So again, if you're investing in CRM, what advice would you give people to ensure that they're not one of the 88% that are considered failed implementations? I think... One is keep it simple. Second is they typically don't get buy-in from the user. So you get a lot of fighting. Sometimes it's passive aggressive fighting where they just say, okay, I'll do it. But then it's like pulling teeth to get them to do it. They don't treat it seriously. So you get the inaccurate information. And I would, you know, it kind of goes to our Sandler philosophy just overall and the way we know people learn and they continue to grow and maintain their edge is I find a lot of CRM training is like one time. It's like, okay, we taught them, they got it. And there's not this constantly going back and reselling them why it's important and what the benefit is and how do you hack it and how do you enhance it. It's very much like Sandler, right? We could we could do one training session and it's all good stuff, but it just don't retain it that way. And they got to keep building on it and mastering it. And so I think part of the delivery mechanism up front is people have a bought in. And then on an ongoing basis, it's very much like our stuff. It never stops. You're always getting better. And I think when a CRM system is unveiled, there's that one day kickoff, here's how you use it. And then it just kind of, then, then management's fighting, like constantly arm wrestling people to, to put accurate information in or use it at all. Okay. I mean, we could, go, we could talk for hours and I suspect we probably will the next time we meet up. But we've come to the top of the hour. Tell me this. What are you reading, watching, listening to that you're really being influenced by at the moment? I'm doing a lot of podcasts and I, I like, I mean, I, I try to get my ideas outside of my own narrow world. So I go to things like Exp Exponential Wisdom with Peter Diamandis and Dan Solo and they have really good thinking on where the world's going and technologies and 
just reinventing businesses and mindsets and at a subset what we talk about today, just having a clean slate. Things like Freakonomics. I mean, there's a number of ones that I keep going back to. So, but for me, the podcast format is is really something I'm spending time with. I'm, you know, I went through a phase where I, for five years in a row, I read 50 books a, a year, right? And so it was cool to talk about, you know, I was kind of puffed my chest out. I read 50 books a year, but I realized my primary criteria at some point wasn't the, the content. It was the length of the book so I could finish it and check it off the list. So I'm like, okay, at some point I caught myself like, this is kind of messed up. So, so I backed off. And now when I'm reading, I come up with my goal. And this year it's 24 books. And every year now, half my books are rereads because I can't get anything the first time I read it. And the second time it's going to be a new book that's out there that someone's told me about. And I find that the best books are the ones, like I'm just rereading it, Robert Cialdini's Influence, which is just a fascinating book on the psychology of persuasion. It's just so good. And I've read it probably three times and I'm catching, I was last week I'm reading it. I'm like, when did they put that page in there? Because like, you know, I've had this book 15 years, like someone put a page in there that I have, I don't know who did that overnight, but I just missed it. And so I think that for a lot of people that I coach, I'm like, don't feel like you need the new shiny object, even though we're in a world where we need to expose ourselves to new thinking. That's why I listen to some of the podcasts I do. I also know that something like Cialdini's influence applies more right now than ever. It's just a different application. And there's so many things that people will go back and just reread them and study them and take notes when they read the book. It's like a whole different experience. Well, a couple of books I'd strongly recommend if you haven't read them. Principles by Ray Dalio. Yes. The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. Yeah, that's a great book. I mean, his whole concept on think time is that's worth the book alone. If, if someone just reads the book and all they take out of it is Keith's process for taking 45 minutes, having a question and journaling in a special room in a special place when he uses his big chief legal pad and he writes for 45 minutes with a kitchen timer and doesn't stop until he's done. If all that someone does, and let's say you only do once a week, I have found the thinking that comes out of it. And I did it last week. I haven't done this week's yet. It's amazing what you can do in 45 minutes with no interruptions and a blank legal pad and a question. If the key is starting with a question. That's why when I coach people through journaling. I'm saying, get rid of your affirmations. So like, what do you mean? Affirmations, do it in the positive, do it in the present. Well, that's fine. But I know if someone has an affirmation that says, I'm going to be healthier, that's cool. But if they ask a question, how can I be healthier? It's a whole different process. And so just asking questions through journaling and Cunningham, I learned that years ago, but Cunningham reinforces, says, just start with a question. And it's amazing when you have a question. See, affirmations, I think a lot of people, their brain fights them. So that's not, not true. That can't happen. Right? But once a question, the brain's like, okay, what if? What if? What would that look like? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Jody, age 23. What advice huh. would you give him? Let's see. What would my golden ticket be? I could go back. I would say don't overthink and overplan, which I can have a tendency to do. My coach one time, because on disc, I'm a DC. And she said, the D part, you want to get it done quickly. The C part, part of you wants to get it done perfectly. So that leads to procrastination. And I thought, 
that's actually pretty, pretty observant, you know? <laughs> so I would tell my 23-year-old self to not analyze as much and, and take some more actions and throw some more stuff at the wall than I have, especially in my early days. And don't worry about screwing it up. The other thing I'd tell my 23-year-old self is that don't worry about getting people's approval. Everyone has it. The people who tell me, well, I don't care what people think still. I mean, I had a guy tell me one time, I don't want, I don't need people to like me. I need for approval stuff. You know, that's so I watch him go out to his car and he gets in a Mercedes SL. And I'm thinking, okay, you don't care what people think of you, yet you just you have like a hundred and eighty thousand dollar car there. You got because he had the six here, the six hundred. I'm like, okay, you can tell me whatever you want. So so but but I would tell myself to really work on that because I think it held me back for a while in that I was just worried about, you know, conflict and confrontation. And really that was the key to, to growing. And I look at all my growth and I think we can all point to this. My, my biggest growth happened in times of stress and uncertainty, but taking a risk. And, and I think we have for the first time in history, history, like a global time where everyone is pretty much experiencing that. Absolutely. That's fabulous. So what, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I would think that it's filtering what the future looks like, knowing that there is so much opportunity. There are so many directions to go. There is no shortage of good news if we look for it. And there's no shortage of opportunities. And I know that you and I will both look back and all the listeners will look back five years from now. And we'll hear about someone who came up with an idea five years earlier and say, why the hell didn't I think of that? Like, like that was like right in front of me. And I actually saw it in front of me, but I never did anything with it. So I think for now, and you and I spoke earlier before we started the podcast, it was like, there is so much opportunity in the world to create value in what we do and what our clients do. It's just a question of finding those two or three that we can really create the most value in and not become a shiny object chaser, which is possible to do where it's like I'm all over the place. So I think that's that's for me. How about for you? I think at the moment I'm wrestling with how do I really focus on my area of specialization. So I really want to be known for and be the aspirational choice for people who want to scale at speed without the wheels coming off. So I'm really focusing on that 10 to $50 million disruptive tech scale up at the moment and working on my proposition for that. It just strikes me as being a huge opportunity. And what I'd really want to do is break the back of the private equity and venture capital market. Because I've just seen so many horrific instances where the wake of destruction that's left behind because of private equity. So helping businesses to grow uh, without needing to go out and get funding. But again, yeah, just trying to break the back of that, that's proving to be quite an interesting challenge. Right. That's, like, that, that's like exciting. What the money does is it provides them with oxygen. But often it's for businesses that by the time they get to the exit, they're not always really well structured, the fundamentals aren't great. Now, I was speaking to Jim Legg at Psychotic, and what was really interesting about him was they've, most of the stuff that they've generated has been through sales. Um, yes, they had some initial investment, they bought out the, the founder, but it's a sales-driven, sales-led organization. And they've gone from nowhere 
to just shy of half a billion in five years. And their investors have let them get on with it. And it's his fifth scale up in a row. And speaking to Tom Shodoff, to Ryan Longfield, to Tom Castley, yeah, these guys are doing amazing, amazing things. So I'm kind of feeding that obsession by interviewing the best in the world um, Good for and you. learning from them. It's, um, that's fascinating. Excellent. That's cool. Excellent. Jody, thank you so much. As ever, inspirational, packful of useful, instantly applicable information. Jody, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you feel that it's worthy of it, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think that you would be a great guest or you know somebody who would be either for the Inquisitor podcast or for my Scale-Ups and Hypergrowth podcast, which I've recently launched, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. And stay safe, happy selling, and get out there, take some money. Bye-bye.